Good morning. It's good to be back up here. It's been almost a year, which is apparently what happens when you preach for 76 minutes. <clears throat> right, Matt? Um, I don't only preach for a year to learn your lesson, so I'll try and keep it under 75 minutes today uh, so you guys can... Yeah, I'm just kidding. Uh, my name is Josh Walker. If you don't know who I am, I'm the president of Eternity Bible College, and I'm one of the elders here at the church, and uh, just really excited to be with you, get to share this week and next week with you. Um, I'd ask you to pray for Eternity Bible College. If you guys don't know what it is, it's a college that got started here out of Cornerstone and kind of is right next door here. And um, we've got a lot going on this year. It's a big year for us with accreditation. We have a site visit coming and um, some important stuff that way. We're starting online education for our first time, and that's a big deal. There's a bunch of things going on, and I would just beg you to pray for us. A lot going on. A lot of, been struggling with worry and some other things that, you know, I just need to be able to trust the Lord in the midst of it. And so I'd appreciate your prayers um, through all of that. Now, what we're going to be talking about is Titus. I bet you could have guessed that. Um, as we've been going through this summer, been studying through Titus for a couple of months. The subject we're going to talk through is something that Paul's brought up a, a few times. He's talked about this idea of good works, right? And good works has come up in several contexts. And he's been talking about doing the right thing, doing good works. Uh, in particular, in chapter 2, verse 7, he says to Timothy, show yourselves in all re- yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Um, and then a little bit later in verse 14, as he's talking about who we are to be, God has redeemed us to be a people who are zealous for good works. So it's come up a few times, and it's a recurring theme through it. And um, what we're going to do is spend this week and next week really talking through how does good works relate to salvation. I believe there's a lot of confusion in the way that people think about it. What are the kinds of good works that we ought to be doing? What does that look like? And why is it that we do them? Um, as a way to kind of lead into that, we, we made a video where we asked a bunch of people um, those two questions. Why do we do good works, and what are they? So just a way to kind of frame a little bit of the discussion, if you'd watch the screen. Good works are things that you do for other people, uh, whether or not they deserve it or have necessarily asked you to do it. Something that you do that makes you feel better, and that help that helps someone else makes you less selfish. You see somebody in need and you go up to them and help. Just anything that really reflects God's glory in uh, any of your actions uh, is selfless. You get nothing in return. You get you don't get paid. I typically think of helping your grandma across the street, helping the old lady who's getting our groceries and helping her put it into the back of her car for her. Things that make us feel good inside and knowing that you know we're doing the right things for the right reason. Acts of kindness. What do you do when you're living like Jesus? to if I ever feel bad for something and it just makes me feel good about myself. Someone else will do a good deed back to you. 
It's the karma thing. It's the karma thing. It's a circle. I do a lot of uh, the stuff I do in my life because God tells me to. In fact, he says if you visit me in prison and you clothe me and you uh, feed me and give me something to drink, whatever you do to the least of these, he said you do it to me. So I do it out of obedience. Probably because it's just something you need to do. Not maybe because you feel you need to do, it's just you absolutely need to do it. We would do good works because um, because as a follower of Jesus, that's what you have to do. Someone has to do it, and because uh, someday you might be in that position where you need help. God says we're supposed to would be most important. Because it's biblical and we've uh, proves our faith to the Lord. To show love, to show care and compassion to other people. Um, just a nice thing to do, I mean, doing to others. So I think you can see from watching that, people have a lot of different opinions about what good works look like, why we should do them. So as we, we talked through, I just kind of wanted that, because I imagine if we just went around the room and everybody asked, you'd, you'd get all kinds of opinion as to what good works look like and why we do them, and that's why we're hoping to kind of study through this and see um, what God says about it. Now, Paul says also, kind of this is a little bit of background as well, that he says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says that, that Titus is to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And the, the idea is that teach them to live a certain way. And that was all the stuff about older men and younger men and older women and younger women, right? That you're supposed to live in a way of what accords with. That's kind of what, what fits with, what makes sense of right doctrine. And I use the word doctrine, and we usually think of that as such a kind of dry, horrible, bad word, right? Doctrine, it's something you want to avoid. Um, but all Paul's talking about here is the system of beliefs, basically what it is that we believe, that whole doctrine of belief, that system of belief, um, that we are to live in a way that accords or that fits with the way that we believe. And I really like the way he says it down in verse 10. He says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, an adornment is something that takes something that's already beautiful and magnifies that beauty. Right, that when a, a woman adorns herself in certain ways, it's intended to take natural beauty and magnify it to the world. And so what Paul's telling Titus is that our lives ought to be basically the magnifying glass that take what it is that we say we believe and shows it, shows how beautiful it is to the world. And that's how our lives ought to be, is to show it in that sort of way. So the bottom line for us is this, is that the gospel, this message about Jesus, transforms people in such a way that we will live differently. And that when we live differently, that way that we live magnifies the message that we say we believe. You see, so the two relate to one another. Now, the gospel often we think of as a message about how we're going to get to heaven someday, right? How we get to kind of spend eternity with God. But we have to realize that it is not only a message about our eternal destiny, but it's also a message about our temporal destiny. What is it? How are we going to live here? How are we going to be different here? And it's a message that actually transforms us, and we're going to talk through that as well. Now, let's read. If you have your Bibles, you can open it. It'll be up on the screen. We're going to read through Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And today we're primarily going to spend our time on verses 3 through 8. So he says this, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. 
For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we want to submit ourselves to it. God, we are desperate for your spirit to continue the work that he has been doing in our lives. We are desperate for him to, to work, to enlighten our minds, to understand your word, and to give us power to obey it. God, we submit ourselves to you and to your word this morning. We do it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So he starts out in verse 1, and I'm going to kind of just skim over verse 1 and 2 because we're going to come back to it next week because I think it's one of those great places where it talks about what are to be the good works. Um, and what are to characterize those good works. But he starts off by saying, remind them. And I think that's an important little phrase. These aren't supposed to be new things for you. So if you read these things, you're like, oh, I'm supposed to do that. Well, it's not supposed to be that way. It's the fact that we're sheep, we're forgetful, so you're supposed to be reminded of these things. And so all those different things through there. Now, note that these, these qualities that he says here are in direct opposition to, in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, he talked about false teachers. And the things that he said about false teachers were that they were insubordinate rather than submissive. They were disobedient, not obedient. They were unfit for any good work rather than ready for every good work. Upsetting whole families rather than peaceable and detestable um, rather than gentle and showing perfect courtesy. So the, the point there is that what we believe changes how we act. So the false teachers... They believed falsehood, and they, their life resulted in it, right? Because they believed certain things, their life looked a certain way. And Paul's saying, we believe something different, so we ought to adorn the doctrine, this thing that we believe, in a different sort of way. It ought to look different than it does for the false teachers. Now, the other thing I want you to notice before we move on to verse 3 is that this is an impossible list to fulfill. Like, you look at these things, and I don't know about you, but when, when he says, speak evil of no one, It's like, well, Paul, there's some people that you don't know in my life. I'm not so sure I can do that. Or here's the one that gets me, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul, really, like, you you don't understand the people I have to deal with. Like, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Like, you just begin to look at this, and it's such a, a high calling, and you recognize that, you know what, on my own, Josh won't do those sorts of things. Right, that in my flesh, on my own, apart from God, I can't live the way that Paul is calling me to. And I think that's part of what he wants us to see. He wants us to recognize that this is an impossible way to live apart from God. You see, God over and over wants us to be reminded that we are desperate for him, that we need him, that we can't live the way that he wants us to apart from him, and that whenever we try to, we will fail. 
that he has to be the one that empowers us to do it. So next week we're going to come back and we're going to walk through some of the details of that um, and hopefully give you some good kind of things of what it looks like to do good work. So hopefully that'll be helpful. But I want to move on to the motivation because Paul has talked about good works quite a bit. And here's the place where he really kind of hits home and says, here is what this is all about. Here's why you're supposed to do this. And he starts off as he's going to talk about this message of the gospel. He starts off with the bad news of who we are or who we were. He says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, which can also be translated deceived, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You see, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, this is who you were, right? This is who we all were. And it's important for us to be reminded on a regular basis, this is the way that we used to be. And this is the way that, this is the thing that God brought us out of. But I know there's some of you here this morning that this is the way you are. This is a description of your life right now. And as we walk through that, I want you to see that this is a description of some of your lives, and I don't want you to miss what God's going to do here. Now let's walk through here. Foolish. This means without knowledge. It means that you're, you're ignorant, that you don't have knowledge, especially of things of God. That people in this world, apart from God, will claim all sorts of things, right? There isn't really a God, or I'm going to get in on my good works, or you know, karma is going to get me there. All sorts of things. It's foolishness. Apart from God, opening our eyes to see and opening our ears to hear, we have no knowledge. That's what he's talking about. That's why you were foolish. You spout out all, all, all sorts of stuff, right? It seems to be kind of distinctly American. We all think our opinion matters. Right? It's like, I don't care what your opinion is. Let's look at the book. Let's, I want to find out about God. I'm not going to listen to your opinion. I'm going to listen to what God says, right? And we just spout off so much. We're foolish. You know, he says that, but he says we're disobedient. The idea here is that we're unable to be persuaded by something that is true or right. You can't be, I think of the idea of stiff-necked. Right, that a horse that's stiff-necked, you try and you know, get it to go one way or the other and it just wants to go the way it's going to go. And that's the idea. It's like Israel in the Old Testament, often God said, you are a stiff-necked people. Right? You're just stubbornly disobedient. That's what he says we were. Then it starts to get worse. He says, not only that, but you were led astray. Now we're starting to talk about things that aren't even our choice anymore. Right? This is something that happens to you. Or you were deceived, and as I've asked you guys before, when you're deceived, do you know it? No, right? I mean, that's what it means to be deceived. You're not knowingly deceived, you're unknowingly, that's what it means. So you don't even know that this has happened to you, and so it's something that has happened to you from the outside, you don't even know has happened to you, and who is it that's doing it? Well, if it's someone on the outside, well, who's the deceiver? See, we have an enemy, his name is Satan, and he has minions that are out there, and you may think this is all foolishness, but it's reality, out there to deceive and lead us astray. And the scary part is, not only is he out there to do that, but he has a co-conspirator in your flesh that wants to work with him to deceive us and lead us into sin and to lead us astray. And apart from Christ, you will be led astray. You will go down that path. See, in Proverbs 7, um, the writer of Proverbs describes uh, a young man who's being tempted by an adulteress. And the description of, of the young man as he's following after, he says it's like an ox going to the slaughter. And I just always think of that when I think of the way that sin leads us astray. You know, the ox is just kind of walking down the, through the pens, you know, and then the little path, and they're just leaning along. Does he have any idea what's at the end? He doesn't know, right? He's just dumb ox walking along. 
that's what we're all like with sin. And that Satan just leads us along and we're just dumb walking along. We're ignorant, we're foolish, led astray and deceived until the hammer falls and we die. And then, as if it could get any worse, he says, you are also enslaved, right? Slavery's not a choice, is it? It's something where you don't have a choice anymore. You, you now are at the, um, the will of another. And in this case, he says, we particularly get enslaved to our passions and our pleasures. And that's what happens with sin, is it begins to entice you, and then once it deceives you, it enslaves you. And apart from Christ, all of us are enslaved to our passions and our pleasures. You are enslaved to sin in some sort of way. You may think you're in control, but you're not. Your sin is ultimately in control, and it is holding on to you. And I don't know what it is, but we all know how this path goes, right? You just want a little taste, you start heading down a direction, and before you know it, you don't know how to get out of the pit you're in because you have been enslaved to it. Passions are those things that, longing for things that are forbidden, wanting to do things that we know we're not supposed to do, Pleasures is that it's the word we get hedonism from, right? It's just the pursuit of complete pleasure. And there, there was a person that told me this past week, and I don't remember who it was, but they were telling me about a coworker that was talking to them and said, you know, you Christians, you think of the body as a temple. He goes, I think of my body as an amusement park. I thought, man, I mean, isn't that, I mean, he was honest, but that's what he is, right? He's enslaved by his pleasures, and you think about it, I just started thinking through the analogy. It's like, yeah, but once you get on the ride, you can't get off. Right? You, you get enslaved to this stuff, and that's exactly what has happened to him. We become like animals, enslaved to our desires and our lusts, and you get hooked into it. And that, that is the way people are apart from God. That's the way some of you are this morning. You are enslaved to the passions and the pleasures that you have. And then he says, we are passing our days in malice and envy. Passing, passing our days just makes me think it's just, you know, we're just going through life, right? Apart from God, there's not really much purpose. You're just kind of passing through. And what's your life characterized by? Malice is the idea of wickedness and depravity. It's just your life's getting worse and worse. And the other thing it's characterized is by envy. And envy is that, that state of not being able to view what other people have appropriately, that you either look at what someone else has, and, and it could be something physical or, you know, the, the marriage they have or anything, and you look at it and you say, I want that. That's one way. But there's another way that I think a lot more of us get deceived into thinking is, I wish they didn't have it. You don't want them to be happy. That's also envy. He says that's what our lives become characterized by. And not only that, he sums it up here at the end. He uses two synonyms here for hatred, hated by others and hating one another. And he's emphasizing here that what happens is that apart from Christ, our life becomes characterized by hatred instead of love. And love is that thing that takes the interest of the other person as more important than our own, right? That's biblical love. It's focused on the needs of the other person more than our own. And and hatred is the opposite of that. And I would suggest to you that sometimes what we call love really would be called hatred. Because what we call love is I love what you do for me. I love how you make me feel. I love how you give me my identity. I love all sorts of things about what you do for me. And so I have this kind of nice, warm, fuzzy feeling about you, and I think it's love, but at the end of the day, it's you're loving yourself, which God says that's really just hating them. You're using them. And he says this is what characterizes our life, all these sorts of things, that apart from Christ, that's what our lives begin to look like. You see, apart from God, all of us were, and some of us still are, in a hopeless state 
unable to know, refusing to comply, deceived, enslaved, passing your lives away in envy and wickedness, lives characterized by hatred. And I want you to understand the desperate nature of our state apart from Christ. That's what Paul wants us to see, that you cannot, there's nothing you can do, you're enslaved to it, right? It's not like, hey, I can just choose to live differently. I'm going to all of a sudden, I'm going to live better and everything's going to be fixed, right? We are desperate apart from God. He wants us to understand that and he wants all of us that have been saved by God to remember that, to remember that's where we've come out of. And if we're to ever understand why good works fit the way they do, you have to understand this first. Nothing you have ever done apart from Christ is good and pleasing to him. And apart from him, you are desperate. You absolutely need him. And then we get to the most beautiful word in the whole passage. It's but. Right? No, not that kind of but. (laughs) Shame on you. Um, It's the contrast, right? That's where we were. But what? Was it, but then I did this? No, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. You see, the difference is that we were desperate, but God did something about it. And he was motivated. He was the one that took the initiative and sought us out. And he did it. He was motivated out of his own goodness and love and his care for us. Now, you see, it's kind of a weird way to put it, right? The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Like, how does, how does goodness appear? And at first, and like I was studying, I'm like trying to understand, what, what's this about? Now, here's what's going on here. You see, in the, in the world that Paul's writing to, he's writing into the Roman world, right? And Rome was ruled by an emperor, the Caesar. And what we know from uh, extra-biblical writings is that Caesar would often use this exact sort of language. A lot of the language we think of for Christ, he would use about himself, So if there was a land that was living, you know, that wasn't part of the Roman Empire, was living kind of all on their own, that when Caesar came and defeated them and brought Roman rule to them, it was called the appearing of Caesar. And what was Caesar called when he did that? He was called the Savior. And what was it that he brought? He brought peace. Does any of this sound familiar? And when he brought that peace, what was this whole message about this whole thing about Caesar called? It was called the gospel, It's all the same language. And so when Paul says this, he's intentionally wanting them to realize, oh, so all of this problem that Rome would tell me the solution is the government, right? The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome is what we're needed here, that we've got all these problems. Rome would say, this is what we bring to everyone. We solve all of your problems. And Paul directly addresses that and says, no. But when God appeared, You see, he wants to directly say, it isn't the government that saves you, it's Jesus that saves you. It's Jesus, when he appeared, he's the one, not everything else you're putting your hope in. And we're gonna come back to this point next week because when he says submit to rulers and authorities, I'm not sure that sometimes we miss this point. I think sometimes we still think the government's supposed to save us, bring peace, all these other sorts of things rather than through Christ. But that's for next week. So if you don't wanna hear that, you can just skip it, right? It's when Jesus comes. And you see, it's so fascinating to me that earlier he talked about in chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. That in these two places where he talks about Jesus and his life and his death and his burial and resurrection, kind of the whole, whole thing about Jesus and what he did, he uses grace of God there to describe it and then goodness and loving kindness, that Jesus is the embodiment of the goodness and the love of God. Like, do you understand that for him to come down and to, Come for God to come and take on flesh and to live the life he did, to die the death he did, was all an act of love for us. 
You see, we were in a desperate state and he, out of love for us, out of his loving kindness and his care for us, he said, I'm gonna do something about it. Right? It was his grace and his loving kindness that caused Jesus to come and to display his love. And what is it that he does? Verse five, that when he appears, he saved us. We didn't save ourselves. He saved us. What is it that we're saved from? I think sometimes we talk about getting saved a lot, but we forget what we're saved from. Do you realize first and foremost, God saves you from himself? That it is the wrath of God that is the main problem that we have. It is, it is his anger over our sin and the fact that he will bring justice to bear on our lives, that that is the main problem, and that all these other problems about the way that we're living and how this world's all gone wrong, yes, he's fixing all those, but those are secondary to the problem of his wrath. You see, your life and how bad your life is, that's gonna end when you die, but you will spend eternity under the wrath of God, right? It, it is the bigger deal. What he saved us from is not just making your life better while you're here, but although it does that, but it's the eternal aspect that is the most important part, right? That he saves us from both of those things. And he's emphatic here, right? If we're gonna understand how works relates to our salvation, you gotta hear Paul clearly here. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. He's emphatic. These things that are done by us are not the basis for God saving us. And it's almost on one hand, he's kind of being sarcastic because verse three didn't sound like a lot of good works really, did it? So it's like, not like good works like you did any. But I think there's some of you that are in this room that you're not trusting in Christ, but when I read verse three, you were like, yeah, that's not me. No, I'm not enslaved to things. I'm fine, I'm good. I'm good on my own. And Paul's here to confront you and say, no, you're not. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you think you're gonna kind of weigh it out on the scales and you're all gonna be good. He says, no, God saves us not on the basis of works that we do in righteousness. It is never the motivation for God. But he says instead the motivation for God not only is his goodness and his loving kindness that he's talked about in verse four, but according to his own mercy. You see, mercy is that idea of being lenient or compassionate to one who deserves justice. Right? Mercy is kind of a law court that you deserve justice, you deserve to, to get something, it's what you deserve, but instead you get something you don't deserve. You're set free from that. And that God looks down on us as miserable creatures that we are and says, I'm gonna show them mercy and I'm gonna show them kindness and instead draw them out of it. That's what motivates God. You see, it's always been what it was. Did God choose Israel because they were some great nation? No, he says the opposite. He's like, no, you were pretty much worthless. That's why I chose you, so I could show how great I am. And Look, it hasn't changed, right? Why did he save me? Because I'm worthless and he wants to display himself through me. That's why he wants to save all of us. He wants to do it out of his mercy and his compassion. You see, God looks down on us as enslaved sinners and that we deserve full justice for our deeds. We deserve eternal punishment by him for the things that we've done. But instead, he's had compassion and shown kindness towards us as the miserable and afflicted people that we are. Now, how does he accomplish this? Now, obviously from everything else we know, the background for this is the death of Christ that atones for our sins, but his focus here is on the work of the Holy Spirit that has to change us on the inside. And there's two crucial things first to understand if we're to understand the place of works. One is you're desperate apart from God. The second one is when he saves you, he changes you by the Holy Spirit. Okay, watch what he says here. He says, he saved us, verse five, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
You see, regeneration is this idea of being made new, of a new birth, of being uh, created into something completely new and different than we were before. Renewal here is not like renewal of a subscription, like one person was kind of wondering. It's not like you had it and you kind of get it over again. Right? Renewal is made completely new. So don't think of it that way. And the reason Paul uses washing here is he wants us to think of baptism. I don't know if when you read the word washing that you think of baptism because in the early church, baptism was always that outward display of this inner reality. That at our conversion, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes in, regenerates us, changes us on the inside, makes us new creatures. And that baptism is that outward demonstration of saying, yes, that's what's happened to me. And for the early church, there was never this idea of, oh, someone's a Christian, but they haven't gotten baptized yet. Like when this happened, they looked for water and said, let's do it. And so I just want to say to you this morning, if you know that you have been regenerated, if you know that God has done this to you, that you have been converted, that you are changed, and you haven't come and gotten baptized, don't come up right now, but at the end of the service, you need to get up here. Right? There, there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to outwardly say. You don't have to wait till you clean up your life. You don't have to wait till anything gets... What he does on the inside, and you know what's happened, is what happens there. That's why... Um, he references baptism. It's also why we don't get rebaptized all the time. Because talking about what happens that initial when the Spirit comes into us, right? You don't come up and signify that over and over again. It's like it happens once and you're, you're part of the family from then on. Now, the role of the Holy Spirit in our works, I think, is the crucial idea here. You see, the impossibility of doing those things is overcome by the fact that the power of the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in each one of you. Now, you have to understand, in the, with Israel, Israel longed for the day when the Holy Spirit would fill each one of them, right? God promised this new covenant. So there's a new, a new covenant coming when my spirit will dwell within each one, right? And this was the, the key thing. And Jesus says to his disciples, it's to your advantage for me to go away because when I go away, I'll send this other one that will come, right? I don't know that we really believe that. And, and I think there's this little, little word in here where he says, verse six, whom he poured out on us richly, and sometimes I think we read it as whom he poured out on us sparingly. Right? We live lives as if the spirit was kind of this little trickle that we, oh, yeah, I can kind of have a spirit once in a while. But he says, no, I've, Jesus has poured the spirit out on us richly. And we ought to live as if that's a reality for us. And you see the reality of the Trinity here, right? Whom, that's the Spirit. He, that's the Father, poured on us richly through Jesus Christ. You see, we're all caught up in what God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is doing in this world. And this is the way it happens, is through him coming and dwelling within us. And you know, sometimes as you're thinking about, okay, what is it like to live in dependence on the Spirit and in dependence on his power versus on my own? Like, do you ever realize kind of, like we say that, like, oh, you're supposed to depend on the Spirit, not yourself. But do you ever think through, like, well, how do I know that practically? Like, I'll do something, and how do I know? Like, was that dependence on the Spirit or not? And um, we're talking through it, and I, I think there's three key ways that you can tell that you're being dependent on the Spirit. One is that whatever you're doing is characterized by prayer. Because a lack of prayer shows a, a belief that you can do it on your own. So prayer is a key one. It indicates that you are dependent on the Spirit. Another one is that you are doing it with fellow Christians. Because God says that my Spirit dwells in my body. And that isn't, sometimes we think of it like I'm the temple. And Paul says you individually, but he also says you corporately. And so we are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And that 
we through one another will bring the word and will help manifest the spirit towards one another. That's why it's crucial for you to be in relationships where people can actually manifest that in your life. So fellowship and prayer, and the third one is the word. Are you, are you seeking out God's word that his spirit will speak to us and empower us? You want to know if you're depending on the spirit? Well, are you hungering for the word? Are you dependent on fellow believers? And are you depending on God in prayer? That'll pretty much characterize it. If you do all your stuff and none of that really characterizes it, you're probably doing it on your own, right? And you're just going to fall on your face at some point. Verse 7, so that, and he's going to tell us, okay, so he did this for a reason. And I think often we think, well, the reason was because God just wanted to save us, and he's got a little bit more to the story than that here. So that, but he's got a little phrase first, being justified by his grace. Now, it's confusing, but when he talked about works done by us in righteousness, the word righteousness and the word justified here, are from the same word, even though in English they look completely different. I'm sorry about that. If I could redo English for you, I would, but I can't. If they give me that power, I will. So they're the same word. So what he's saying is, what your right standing before God cannot be achieved by works, but instead is achieved by grace. That you get a right standing before God, that instead of being this one that, is, um, that God's justice is upon you and his affliction, that his uh, wrath is upon you, Instead, you get this right standing before God, and it is achieved by God's grace. And grace is a word which means that it's completely independent of anything that you deserve. Right? It's unmerited. It's not because you deserve it. But we get this right standing before God because of his grace, and he's the one that does it. Now, what is it that he, why is it that he does it? So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, God's purpose in saving us, as he said back at the end of chapter 2, was to make a people for himself. As he's putting it here, it's so that he would have multiple heirs, right? That God will be our father. And I don't know, you know, we use the word father a lot. Do you ever think of God being your dad? You ever pray to God, dad? It's, I think it's good for us, like, to realize, like, he's our dad. He really is. And he loves you like a dad, like a good dad, some of us didn't have good dads, so I've got to be careful there. But he loves you like a good dad. And he, what does it mean to be the heir? It means you get all the riches of the father, right? This is what he wants so that we will have the riches that he has for us, that he is going to pour out on us. And he says, according to the hope of eternal life. And, you know, I read that phrase and I realize that for some of us, often we read that phrase and we think of it as the curse of eternal life. Like when you think of eternity and what we're going to be doing with God, is it something that you hope for and you long for? Or is it something that you kind of hope happens a while from now because you're kind of enjoying life as it is? And that doesn't sound too exciting. I don't want to show our hands, but let's be honest. I think a lot of us, the way, and it's because we don't understand what eternal life's all about. That God is going to do something amazing. Look, eternity is going to be more amazing than you can even imagine. It's not going to be boring. You're not going to be playing harp, sitting on, you know, clouds. God said he's going to make a new world, right? And at the very beginning, he said, I made this world for you to rule over, right? So we're going to have a whole new world. Now sin's going to be gone that we get to rule over and make amazing things and do amazing things and get to be in direct fellowship with God through the whole of it and with one another in a way that our sin no longer will hinder our relationships with one another. I mean, that's going to be amazing, it's not going to be boring. So the hope of eternal life, like that's our inheritance. Our inheritance is eternity. This world, everything. 
Not this world, but the recreated one, the new one. And yeah, I could talk about new creation forever. I'm excited about it. And if you're not excited about it, you need to keep thinking about it because it's exciting. Yeah, I said the same word five times. So, <laughs> verse eight, yeah. The saying is trustworthy. So here he comes down and basically he's gonna bring it home. This saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. So I'm gonna insist on these things, all right? So that those who have believed in God, now I wanna stop there for a second because I wanna go back. I know some of you have not believed in God. And if you have not believed in God, I don't want you to listen to what comes after this because this isn't for you. If you haven't believed in God, I have one thing to say to you this morning. Believe in God, trust in him. He is the one that will set you free. Your good works, everything you do will never set you free. Believe in God. But for those of us that have believed in God, here's what he tells Titus, that we should be careful to devote ourselves to good works. Now, I don't know about you, but often we don't hear that in the church, right? That it's, oh, good works don't save you, so then we just kind of like throw them out. And instead, Paul says, no, this is exactly why God saved us. He didn't save us because of our good works, but he saved us in order to do good works, right? And he's clear on this in a couple of places. And what we have trouble is we can't distinguish between what I could call like self-righteous works or um, legalistic type works, you know, and, and other people seem to have trouble distinguishing it, and works of obedience that are done out of love and response to what God has done, empowered by the Spirit. And, you know, last summer when I preached, uh, Todd got all my hate mail, which was amazing. So if you don't like anything I say, I say once again, uh, Todd Nyschwanger is the one that gets my hate mail. Um, but some of you are saying, well, Josh, you're not preaching grace because you're calling us to obedience. Well, you know what? If, if I call you to obey a command and I say, you ought to do this, because it will earn favor with God or anything like that, you're absolutely right. But if on the flip side I say, you know what, you ought to obey and you ought to do this because of what God has done for you, that's exactly in line with what Scripture is saying. And we can't just see any call to obedience as being this bad side. And a lot of people want to do that because they don't want to hear anything. I don't want to have to do anything, right? I don't want, don't tell me to obey. Don't tell me to change my life. And so it's like, no. But the whole motivation is different, isn't it? Like, out of the amazing goodness and love of what God has done for me, I want to love him. I want to do what he wants me to do. I want to do things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, he says here, this is the way that we ought to handle these good works, is that we ought to be careful to devote ourselves to them. The idea of being careful is thoughtfulness. And I think a lot of us live life kind of like a piece of driftwood floating down a river, just we're just floating wherever we go and just, you know, there's no intentionality, just kind of floating through life. And he's saying, no, you need to have intentionality, thoughtfulness to what you're trying to accomplish with your life. And that intentionality ought to direct itself specifically to not just how to do good works, but how to be devoted to them. And that phrase devoted to, I think is just very significant in that when people look at you, if you're devoted to something, everyone who knows you knows that about you. Right? And for many of us, we may do good works, but is it something that people would say, yeah, that's, that's a devotion of their life. They are devoted to doing good works. You know, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us consider, it's that idea, again, of thinking through, that do you, in the context of fellow believers, do you take time to think, you know what, I know that person and I know what they're good at, and I'm gonna consider how to help them become better at what God's designed them to do. You see, because what he's talking about here is something that's corporate, not individual. 
I don't want you to go out here and say, okay, you know, I'm going to go kind of sit by myself and figure out what I'm supposed to do. But instead, we ought to, as a group, help stimulate one another to think through these things and think through them together. Ask questions. Ask um, people that you're in relationship with. Say, hey, what, what do you think I'm good at? Where, where should I, where are my gifts best used? What should I be doing? And people, we can stimulate one another. And, and often, you'll just, incredible ideas will come out of other people's mouths on how to devote yourselves to good works. Now, I think that part of why we often mess this up is the relationship that we have with God is so different than any other relationship we've ever experienced. Because none of us, apart from God, have ever experienced a relationship that is perfect love and perfect grace. And so in every other relationship, we feel like what we do somehow is what causes that person to love us or to care for us. And I don't know who it is with you, whether it's been boyfriends or it's dads or moms or girlfriends or spouses, like... We all have these, you know, messed up relationships where we end up trying to do things in order to make the other person happy. Some of you are people pleasers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, But as a result of that, what we do is we start thinking, oh, I got to act that way to God instead of realizing, no, our relationship with God is distinctly and completely different than any of those other ones. And consequently, all those other relationships can become much more healthy as you begin to live out the way that you do with God with other people. But that's a sermon for a different day. But you can't bring in your way of relating with other people into the way you relate to God. You have to see that he is a loving, gracious God, that it doesn't matter what you do. He loves you. And out of response to him, let's be zealous to do good works. Let's devote ourselves to it. Let's think it through carefully with each other. Now, he wraps up this way. Here's his summary of this whole thing. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Wow, what an amazing statement because... Often we think of obedience to God and doing good works as like misery. Okay, I guess I'll give to the poor. You know, okay, I guess I'll submit to the rulers and authorities. And God says, no, this is excellent and profitable. And notice he's not just saying for us. It's not like this is a, oh, it'll be good for you. But he's saying for people in general, that when we live the way God has called us to live, and we're going to talk through that more next week as we look at the details of it, that we impact all the people around us. And that's the way it was from the beginning. When God set apart Abraham, he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you in order for what? You to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing was the idea. And so he blessed Israel, and Israel at times would bless the nations around him, but for the most part said, oh, aren't we great? We're blessed by God, and we're all going to kind of keep it inside. And that's how we still continue to act as the people of God. We've kind of carried that on, and God says, no, I'm blessing you to be an overflow of blessing to all the people around you. And that ought to be. So true good works are characterized by blessing to all the people that are around you. We should be bent on. I kind of like that phrase. We should be bent on being a blessing. That should be our characteristic as we think through life, as we go through our day, that as we consider what we might do, bent on being a blessing to others. See it be an overflow of the things that we do. He compares it in verse 9, and we'll, we'll cover a little bit more of it next week. But he compares it with the foolish, the unprofitable, and the worthless. And just what I want to say to you is, so if you've trusted in Christ, do you want your life to be foolish, unprofitable, and worthless? Or excellent and profitable? Well, let's get about it then. All right. 
I know, like I said earlier, there are some of you that are living in verse 3. You're foolish and you're disobedient. You're stiff-necked. You know it. You know you're disobedient. You know you live a life of hate, trying to get people to fulfill you rather than caring about others. Your life isn't characterized that way. You know you're in rebellion against God. And I just want to ask you, are you ready to give it up? Are you ready for God to save you? And for those of you that when I read verse 3, you said, you know what, that's not me because I'm better than that. I'm not like that. But you aren't trusting in Christ. You're still saying, yeah, you know what, when I stand before God, it's going to be pretty good. I want to ask you as well, are you ready to give that up? Are you ready to let go of that and instead trust God? Because he's the one that in his loving kindness has come to set you free from those things. You are enslaved to those. If either one of those of you, I encourage there's going to be people up at the prayer room, come talk to someone, let them walk you through that, lead you in um, understanding better just how God will, will do this in your life. And I want to talk to those of us that claim to be followers of Christ. And I want to ask you a question. You see, the key for why we do good works is because the Spirit lives within us, right? If your life, if you say you're a follower of Christ and your life hasn't manifested an iota of change, I just want to ask you, is the Spirit really alive in you? I want you to ask yourself, is the Spirit alive in you? Because here's the deal. None of us can see each other's hearts. It'd be nice like, if we kind of had a little you know, heart thing. Oh, yeah, you're really not a believer. But we don't. Right? So all we have is what you do, and all you have is what I do. And so we need to be willing to look at one another because of this, this issue of deception I talked about, right? You don't want to be Matthew 7, right? But Lord, Lord, I, I did these things in your name. I prophesied in your name. He says, I never knew you. I, I, that scares me. I don't want to be one of those. And I hope none of you want to be one of those. So we ought to be those that look at each other and just say, you know what? I love you, and I just don't see any manifestation of the Spirit in your life. Are you sure you've actually, this has really happened, and you didn't just say it? Because right? there are those that will profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. And we need to be willing to just say, hey, is the Spirit alive in you? Because that's, everyone who's saved has the Spirit alive in them, right? So if you claim to be saved, and I see nothing of the Spirit in you, I ought to care about you enough to say, you know what, you might have deceived yourself. And we all ought to do that with one another. So I encourage you to do that and do it prayerfully and kindly. You know, don't be like beating people over the head and saying, Josh told me to. And, and if someone does, send the hate mail to Todd. <laughs> You're getting it, right? Nice longer. Um, but here's where I want to finish. For those of us that you're trusting in Christ, you see the spirit manifest in your life, here's what I want you to think about this week. I want you to think about how can I take this beautiful doctrine. Now, let me ask you. Do you really believe the gospel's beautiful? Like when you think about God coming and being a man in order to live among us, in order to die on a cross for us and is resurrected, when you think through that whole thing that God has done, is it beautiful to you? Because if it's beautiful, let your life be an adornment to the beauty of it. Think through how can I magnify the beauty of what God has done? How can people look at me and say, not what a, Josh, wow, you did a lot of great things, but instead say, Josh, you have a beautiful God. And that's a beautiful message. You see, that's what it means to adorn the doctrine of God with our lives. That's what good works ought to do. It ought to motivate in people that desire to just glorify and honor our God, right? People will see our good works and honor and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as I say these words, I'm, just once again made so aware that we're desperate for your spirit not just to save us but to 
continue to empower us each and every day. I thank you that you are the one that is at work within us, that you will bring us to completion, God, that we will bear no guilt. But Lord, we just desire to to please you because you're our dad and we love you. Thanks for being a good dad. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters and that we're a family. We all get to be fellow heirs together. God, you are beautiful. Your son is beautiful and your message is beautiful. Lord, allow us to adorn it with our lives. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.